I'm sharing the gospel with a guy at the moment and um, I had put up uh, an ad for this conference on Facebook and um, he, he asked me about it and said, um, reaching the western suburbs, what does that mean? What are you, what are you trying to reach? Uh, which is a fair question, I think, a good question for an unbeliever to ask. And, um, and so I thought it's important for us as we, as we try and tackle this topic of how to reach those who are out there around us, what it is exactly that we're reaching them with. Before we can reach out to those around us, we need to know what it is that we're reaching them with. And I think the book of Jude is very helpful in bringing us back to the main thing, that is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I was um, meeting with a young guy yesterday here, just out here in the foyer. He's um, a young guy who's just come on board here at the church and wants to go into ministry. Um, so I'm mentoring him and I, I said to him that I was you know, going to speak this morning and I told him that I was going to preach from Jude and that they'd given me 20 minutes. And um, he, he laughed a lot and, um, and asked me if I'd ever spoken for 20 minutes before. Um, so I decked him. <laughs> um, no, I, I kind of took it on the chin because it's true. I don't think I've ever spoken for 20 minutes. So just pray for me that we'll be able to get this done, all right? We're going to try and do the whole book together. So get a finger in there. I've got the uh, ESV, but let's just work with whatever you've got in front of you. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the message that we're reaching out with, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That as Christians, the message that we communicate is one that we look back to. We look back to Jesus' once-for-all death on the cross and we look back to Scripture to give us the message of that once-for-all death, once-for-all delivered to us. That our message comes to us by revelation, not through speculation. I'm sharing the gospel with a guy at the moment who, one of these weird, young, Aussie, blokey guys who is actually searching for something deeper than, uh, you know, toys and friends and girls and parties. One of those weird guys who just who, who doesn't buy the myth that all we have is what we, what we have in front of us, that all we have is, is what we can sense. And so um, I'm speaking to him and his, where he's at at the moment is he just wants to try and discover for himself what the truth might be. And so he, he sits alone a lot and just thinks, and contemplates. And what the message I'm trying to communicate to him is that actually Christianity and the truth is not, is not uh, we don't come there through speculation, but we get there through revelation. The faith that we share, the message of the gospel has been once for all entrusted, once for all delivered to the saints. Why do we need to contend for that faith? Why do we need to be so certain of it and then to contend for it? Jude says in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Jude says, we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. The objective truth of the gospel that has been once for all entrusted to us, we must contend for it because there are some who will try to distort it. There are some who will come into church, uh, into churches. In this case, Jude says, they have crept in unnoticed and will seek to lead people astray, lead people away from that truth once for all delivered. In this case, they're taking the glorious truth of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the most beautiful truth in the universe, and using it for the sake of sensuality or lust. They're not coming in and saying, you know, Jesus isn't Lord or Jesus didn't really die or that the grace isn't really true, that really we've got to work for our salvation. They're actually taking the grace of God and saying, isn't it great that Jesus died for sin? Isn't it great that God is gracious? Now let's sin up a storm because God is gracious and will forgive us. So Jude says, for this reason, we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. And I think he gives us four ways that we need to contend for this and we'll just work our way through the rest of the the letter looking at these four ways. First of all, he says, remember that God judges error. And I think he, he reminds us of some of this Old Testament history about how God judges false teaching, God judges error, God judges lack of fidelity. First to warn us from doing the same And then to encourage us that it's God who judges. That that this isn't anything new for him. That he's in control. I think John Howard kind of coined it. If he didn't coin the term, he used it vociferously a few years ago about being alert and not alarmed. Alert but not alarmed. And I think that's Jude's message here. Be alert to this error. But don't be alarmed because God judges. Let's read. Verse 5, he says, I want you to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The people of God saved out of Egypt... After experiencing the grace of God, those who wandered away from the faith were destroyed by Jesus, he says. Even the angels who did not keep their position of authority were condemned, were judged, awaiting that great day of judgment. And Sodom and Gomorrah, who likewise, like these false teachers, indulged in sexual malpractice, have been judged and will be judged. Verse 8, yet in like, manner, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We won't go into that. You can follow that up yourself in your commentaries. It's interesting. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them 
For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They have no fear before God. They rush into the kind of behavior, the kind of teaching, the kind of leadership that results in judgment and has always resulted in judgment and will always result in judgment. Leaders take note. Teachers take note. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude says, there is a history of this kind of false teaching. God has always judged it and he will always judge it. We ought not be surprised when we see it. It was about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with 10,000 angels of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think ungodliness is probably the main point in that passage. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. These are not leaders who are genuinely struggling to know the truth, pursuing the once for all faith that was delivered, wanting to know God's revealed will. And word, these are people who are rushing in to sin. Loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Enoch prophesied about them. We ought not be surprised by their presence. And likewise, verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Jesus himself told us that these men and women would be among us. The apostles likewise did, and we ought not be surprised when we see them among us. The point is, we ought to be warned against the judgment coming against those who teach false doctrine, and it should encourage us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. You ought to be alert to the reality of this, but not alarmed because God has always judged and God will always judge people like this. Remember that God judges error. Number two, we ought to exercise care for ourselves. It sounds very postmodern, but I think this is one of Jude's Uh, concerns for the leaders in the church. Remember, uh, actually, this is written to the members of the church, not just the leaders or the pastors. But for the people of the church, Jude wants us to exercise appropriate self-care. Verse 20 to 21, he says, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's four, uh, if you remember your Greek uh, 
classes, if you've been to them, are four participles here, four doing words that Jude wants us to pay close attention to. I just went on a conference where we did the, uh, you might have done it, the DISC profile, the DISC test, and I'm, um, I'm, I'm way up there with the DI, right? Just nothing in the other quadrants at all, way up there on DI, and so I'm just, I'm always focused on doing things. What's the bottom line? How are we going to get done? And so I like Jude. Uh, he's all about getting things done. He gets straight to the point. He doesn't need chapters. He's just going to write it out all in one and get to the point by the end. Uh, when I got saved as a 19-year-old, Jude was my favorite book for the first couple of years. And I think mainly because it was so short, um, but also because he just gets straight to the point. And so he's going to give us three doing things to focus on. He wants us to focus on building, praying, keeping, and waiting. Building, praying, keeping, and waiting. Build yourselves up. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Sort of occupy a lot of our time, a lot of our thinking. How do we build ourselves up so that we can likewise build up others? How do we build ourselves up in our most holy faith that was once for all delivered so that we can contend for it, so that we can reach out to others with it? And I know that many of you will agree with me that that primarily happens as we saturate ourselves in the word of God. Number two, praying. Praying in the Holy Spirit. I know there's a lot of presidents here with us this morning, but don't, don't freak out too much. Um, it's okay. We're allowed to pray in the Spirit. It's Geneva push, but we can do this, all right? We can pray in the Spirit. I had someone ask me when I was preaching through this, um, you know, are you going to give us a course on how to pray in tongues, if that's what this is all about? And so obviously I didn't preach this passage very well, or at least this uh, verse very well, because it doesn't necessarily mean praying in tongues, though it may mean that, as far as I'm concerned. But I think fundamentally praying in the Spirit means praying in such a way that we are utterly self-forgetful, utterly dependent on the power of the Spirit in all of our prayers. Willing to be guided, willing to be shaped, willing to be reformed, willing to be rebuked, corrected and trained by the Spirit in our prayer life. Building, praying, keeping yourselves in the love of God. I think for pastors or at least leaders in churches, this can be a challenge for us. We're so concerned for the sheep. We're so concerned for those around us that we don't attend to keeping ourselves in the love of God. Do you attend to your own spiritual vitality, spiritual life? Something to think about. 20 minutes, all right. Building, praying, keeping and waiting Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Over and again, when Jude, um, what Jude wants to do is remind us that Jesus is in control, Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is in charge, and Jesus is coming. And so we ought to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can rest in that. Jude says, remember that God judges error, exercise care for yourselves, and then go out and contend for the faith by winning others to Jesus. Verse 22 and 23, he says, 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He says, as we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we show mercy to those who are lost. You notice he, he talks about winning people through mercy. Not through argument, but through mercy. Not through judgment, but through mercy. We need to exercise enough judgment or discernment to see where people are. And so he, he gives us three categories of people here, I think. He says, have mercy on those who doubt, those who are wavering, those who perhaps are starting to wander away from the faith that was once for all delivered. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. These people are in grave danger. Maybe they're starting to receive some of that false teaching. Maybe they're starting to walk in some of that licentiousness that was present in in this congregation. And so he says, snatch them out of the fire. He's mentioned fire a couple of times in in the book already, and it's the fire of eternal judgment. So we need to be honest and open about where people are heading and to be able to snatch them out of that fire. And to others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. I think this is probably, probably your uh, biblical warrant or injunction for hating the sin but loving the sinner. He says, show mercy to those who are lost, who are in grave sin, Hate even the garments stained by the flesh. Hate the sin that they're involved in, but show mercy to them by extending them the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude, like every good writer, at least the ones that I read, finishes with the sovereignty of God. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, as far as I'm concerned, He writes, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. He leaves him with a word of encouragement. There's the the letter that Jude wanted to write and the letter that he had to write. If you're a pastor, you know this dynamic that's constantly at work in your ministry. There's there's the letter that he wanted to write. He talks about in the first couple of verses a a sort of ironic treatment of the, the faith that we share. Isn't it great what Jesus has done for us on the cross? And the letter that he had to write, a word of warning and rebuke and correction. Isn't that our our work with our people so often? But he bookends the the book with the sovereignty of God. He starts by saying, Judah, servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved by God and kept for Jesus Christ. Past, present, future, Jesus is in control. And he finishes by saying, to him, to Jesus, to our great and glorious God who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Past, present, future, Jesus is in charge. Be alert, but don't be alarmed. Jesus is in charge. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. Stand on the once for all objective truth of the gospel. 
And as you contend, as you reach, as you seek and work to reach the western suburbs of Melbourne or whatever your context is, trust in the glorious, sovereign Lord of the universe, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, your word is so sweet. We thank you so much that we have copies of it before us. We thank you that we can trust that every time we pick up your word, you are speaking to us. The word of God is living and active. And we thank you for your servant, Jude. We thank you for his reminder to us this morning that though we ought to be aware that there are those who distort the truth, that you are calling us to contend for the truth. So again, we pray that you would bless us this morning, incline our hearts to your word, open them and make them teachable, moldable, trainable, for Jesus' sake. Amen.